This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 16th, 2024. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zoller is coming to you again here from Phoenix, which is cool for Phoenix, but very warm compared to the rest of the country right now. So hopefully the rest of you have made it through your weekend and we're getting ready to start up tax season. We're getting closer. Still basically two weeks to go before the start of the actual processing season, but other things are up and ready to run. This, we're going to look at the following developments in the area of tax. We're going to continue with the discussion of what's going on in Congress with talks on the proposed tax bill. Not really been a whole lot this week that's new, but there does appear to have been continuing talks. Certainly nobody's yet said that nothing's going to happen. So we'll take a talk about where we're at right now. We're going to also talk about IRS guidance provided on the pension-linked emergency savings account anti-abuse provisions, which are kind of an interesting sub-discussion of how that would work, how that whole thing works. Press also granted relief for some new information that's required on Form 8308 for partnerships in new part four. We discover that they're going to give a break, but you may or may not be thrilled with the break in question because it doesn't really get rid of having to report the extra information this year. It just simply allows you to send it out all the way through uh, the, the extended due date of the Form 1065 rather than having to have it done by January 31st. But, you know, it's not the greatest, uh, let's say, maybe not what some people might have hoped for a delay in this. It'll be interesting to see what the IRS does going forward, because as we'll discuss, this particular relief only covers the 23 tax years. So that leaves open what's going to happen in 24 and later tax years. The IRS also updated a notice to describe how to obtain certain exemptions from electronic filing. The IRS, there were changes made in the uh, taxpayer, basically Taxpayer First Act in 2019 that were meant to require more, larger number of tax, of not just tax exempt entities, everybody has to file electronically, but other types of entities, and we're facing that this year. Uh, the Previously, under the old law, there was a separate set of requirements and a separate way of applying for exemptions. So we'll talk somewhat about if you can qualify for an exemption, and if you can, what options are available. We'll talk a little bit about that. So let's start talking about the talks continuing on the proposed tax bill. Now, the most recent article I saw at the end of this week was written by Caitlin Riley uh, on the Roll Call website, stating chief tax writers working to broaden the appeal of a tentative accord. And, well, they're calling it a tentative accord. There appears to be a basic understanding of what they want to have happen, but there's still got some ways to go. The reported costs, though, in this particular version of the story has now been dropped to 70 billion. Previously, it was near 100 billion. So looking like at this point, they're reducing down. It will still be one of these issues where they're going to split the cost or the benefits of this between the Democrats' key priority, which is expanding the child tax credit, and the key priorities of the Republicans, which are mainly business tax provisions, including undoing two Tax Cuts and Jobs Act pay-fors, meaning the 174 amortization of research and experimental expenditures, and as well, the uh, including in the 163J interest limitation calculation, 
for the taxable income calculation that we use on this uh, to, to go ahead and remove, as we had for the first few years of this, we wouldn't count the uh, any deductions for amortization, depreciation, or depletion in computing our taxable income limitation that we take our percentage times. Uh, that would be part of the proposed Republican uh, contribution to this, as well as restoring bonus depreciation in full. That wasn't really a pay for in the act because the act gave, took us up to 100% bonus, but it had an early phase out. And so we want to see it go back to 100% full bonus depreciation. But again, all of this is still, yeah, basically they said, if we get a deal, it's going to be like that, but there still is no clear way to pay for the bill. In fact, this article specifically brought up an exemption, a, a complaint about trying to use the employee retention credit to pay for this bill, some restrictions, cutting it off early or whatever. Now, it was mainly a fight over whether that should count as a, you know, a, as basically money towards this uh, when he says what well, was already scored earlier and really th this isn't really a savings because we already spent more if you think about it than originally it's spent. So we'll get into that whole long discussion as to whether or not the change should count as paying for this. But I have a feeling in the back of my mind that while there may be some theoretical objections, I'm not going to bet that's going to cause it to bust there. It's looking better for the ERC in some way, shape, or form to be there. Potentially not cutting off early because the IRS did not ask for that. There was a hearing in Senate Finance Committee this week about issues with the ERC, and the commissioner did not anymore ask for an early cutoff, but the commissioner is asking for the right to penalize promoters, uh, also looking at extending the statute to a full five years on all parts of the ERC. So we're looking at some changes involved in that particular structure, and that may be a pay for out of the bill left to see how things go. There's also still a concern over what vehicle we can use to pass the bill. In fact, the article quotes former chair of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, Charles Grassley, Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa, as stating that he doesn't think there's, a, there's any way, any vehicle to get this passed. You know, his point is he doesn't see that any of the bills that have to get passed right now are likely to be have this attached to it. He's just skeptical, that is. He's also somewhat skeptical that, you know, we've got to get the attention of the Speaker of the House, who currently is busy with other things. Uh, that said, some others have taken the position that, well, if we get all of this done, vehicles just tend to come up if there's full agreement. So we'll see what that what it means. But and even, you know, Senator Grassley was not so much saying this won't happen as it won't happen in January. And that's a little bit of concern for those of us in tax for the obvious reason that if it doesn't happen in January, then we may be looking at retroactive changes into the middle of 2024 or changes during tax season, uh, either of which could complicate matters tremendously. So, Certainly want to keep an eye on this development, see what, if anything, happens. But for right now, there's nothing much to report. We have no bill language to go from. We don't have anything to say, you know, what exactly is going to happen here. Once we get bill language, then it becomes a bit more serious, and we'll see where we stand at that point. Next up, we got three IRS, basically, developments that occurred toward the end of the week. Um, the first one is Notice 2024-22. 
issued on January the 12th. And this is partial guidance provided on the limits on anti-abuse provisions that employers could add to pension-linked emergency savings accounts they might decide to put into their retirement plans. Now, these pleas are Roth-style accounts, uh, essentially. You know, they're capped at $2,500 in the, it can be added to defined contribution retirement plans that take employee deferrals. So 401ks, 403bs, and government 457b plans are the ones that could hold this. Now, the point of this, it was added in the Secure uh, 2.0 Act of 2022, was that you would have an account set up for non-highly compensated employees. You could set one up. You can even have kind of automatic enrollment, put people in this. And what would happen is you would direct up to $2,500 of their deferrals uh, would be directed into this employee savings account. And this account could be withdrawn and the $2,500 used at any time. You can't you can have more than $2,500 in it at a time. There also were a couple of other crazy rules involved in this, but the bottom line was it would allow them essentially to have this pool of funds. Now, there was a concern in this particular issue that some employers might be hesitant to adopt this provision because they might see ways that employees could kind of decide, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to contribute, but not really. I'm going to put the money in there, get the $2,500 in there, primarily to earn my matching contribution from the 401k, the 457b, whatever plan we're talking about. And then knowing that I am going to have an emergency, I will just create one if need be, because that's not very well defined in the law. And so I'm going to pull that money out, but I'm going to go ahead then and every year keep kind of reinstating the 2,500 in, get my match on it. So the match keeps building up in the plan, but I'm not really ever intending to contribute to the plan, having contributions. So because of that, Congress put in a couple of things legislatively they believe will help work against the matter. But then secondly, they also came back and said that employers, uh, you know, could go ahead and have reasonable restrictions. The IRS was told to bring up guidance in this area within one year after the effective date of the plan or of the, you know, of this provision. Now, the bad news was of the act, I should say, the bad news was the act was effective at the end of December of 22. And the IRS basically missed the deadline by two weeks, but that's not that horrid. It may have been a problem if you wanted to put the plans in place uh, for 24. But then again, even if the IRS brought them out at the one-year date, you wouldn't have had it that far in advance to be able to figure out what to do. But we now do have at least some guidance. The IRS makes clear this is not complete guidance on these plans. This is just guidance on the area they were ordered. They had to get the guidance out quickly on. So this is part of the deal. Now, what Congress said was a couple of things they put in that they believe help go against this. First, order of matching contributions for a year. Matching contributions will always be deemed to first apply to the non-basically PLESA accounts. So the idea is, you, you know, any matching goes to the other parts of the contribution first, as opposed to the savings account. So that they thought that might help. 
also the maximum matching contribution for the PLESA, the pension-linked emergency savings accounts, is limited to the plan's maximum deferral into those accounts. So no more than $2,500 if you just take the amount the law allows you to go up to, but you can't establish an even lower number. So they, they thought that's an option. Now, employers can use additional reasonable procedures to limit the potential for abuse, but Congress was also somewhat aware that employers could abuse the anti-abuse rules, so IRS was supposed to give us some guidance. Now, the IRS spends a lot of time trying to convince employers that you should really consider if the two things Congress gave us, if that's good enough for your purposes. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you'll, we'll talk about that because what they do next is they don't tell us of any sort of reasonable procedure you could use that counts. They just tell us of ones that don't. To be honest, though, I expect that a lot of employers are just going to see these as too much trouble to begin with anyway. And so probably is not going to not going to be that worried about it or not, you know, just not going to set one up. Then it's not an issue. Or number two, you know, if, if they really do think this is a good idea, then they would go ahead and set up. But again, I, I think the, the idea of gaming it, I have a feeling that Congress probably should have made uh, a little more. Shall we say, uh, you know, other penalty provisions are kind of like the thousand dollar. Uh, emergency withdrawal, similar provision, but comes out of a regular account. Uh, maybe have a deal like that where they were not allowed to re, you know, they're, they're not, not allowed to use it except once every three years, or they would have to put the money back in. But, you know, whatever reason is not get around this issue of putting money in all the time, having the intention to pull the money back out just to attract the match. And I have a feeling that that's probably is going to slow up some employers from wanting to do this. Now, the IRS provides the following non-exclusive list of provisions that would be non-reasonable. And they say you couldn't have any provisions that provided for the forfeiture of those matching contributions if the money didn't stay in long enough. You can't also have a suspension of participant contributions to the pension-linked emergency savings account, you know, after they've taken money out or maybe have to take it out two times or whatever. That's not there. Uh, can't have a suspension, suspension of magic contributions on participant contributions to the underlying plan. So you couldn't make it up that way. And the IRS also holds in this that Revenue Ruling 7455 and 7456, that they are not relevant to these programs. Some employers were concerned they were. So we had that particular background on how this one is going to run. Next up, we have IRS Notice 2024-19. It came out on the 11th. And this relates to Form 8308. Now, Form 8308, Report of a Sale or Exchange of Certain Partnership Interests, is a form that is provided by the partnership to the selling partner and the purchasing partner in the case where we have a hot asset problem. And we have a, you know, where there was, a, you know, a, a sale of the partnership interest from one partner to either another partner or a new partner. That's going to trigger under 751 some form of the hot asset rules to be in place. Generally, that report has to be provided with, you know, by the end of January, uh, when the partnerships as appraised of the sales taken place. By the end of January, they have to essentially get this report out. However, in November of 2022, 
The IRS published final regulations that added information a partnership must provide to the seller and buyer of a partnership interest under 751A. So as I said, the hot asset rules. So there's certain information beyond what they've been normally doing. And in fact, there was basically in October of 23, the IRS brought out a brand new Form 8308 that has this information on it. So the, the catch is, though, this very short-term run. And the problem is going to be the nature of the information required. The IRS added Part 4. And Part 4 has the real problem with the information you've got to add uh, in terms of what would normally be given on an 8308. In this case, with the Form 8308, not only do you have to do the standard 751A gain or loss, which is usually the receivables inventory type issues, um, but you're also going to be providing information about the Section 1H5 gain. That would be if there's any appreciated collectibles inside the org entity, as well as any deemed Section 15 unrecaptured gain. You remember that? So basically, we have real property here. We've taken depreciation on the real property. You do remember we have a special 25% tax rate that applies cap on that income. So we're going to do all three of those. Now, one thing is, these are going to eventually all be reported as well on the K-1 with using code BOX20, codes A, B, A, C, A, D. Now, the actual part for schedule that you have to do, and if you look at the slide, you'll see it on the screen. But for each one of those categories, 71A gain or loss, one, you know, the collectibles gain or loss, and the uh, 1250 gain or loss, we're going to provide the partnership level entirely deemed sale, deemed gain, deemed gain on sale or loss for these areas. We're going to talk about then the percentage interest in the partnership that was transferred from one from one partner to another or from an old to a new partner, as well as the number of units in the partnership transferred. And then finally, the partner level deemed sale gain loss that would be reported on the seller's return. And generally, it adjusts the seller's basis uh, to get to a gain or loss that's going to be subject to the standard. Uh, you know, capital gain rates or be treated as a capital loss. So what are we going to do with this now? How do we change this? Well, what the change will be, partnerships had protested that we may not know those gains because those gains are going to be somewhat, you know, involved with going back and getting things revalued as of that date. I don't know about you, but we, you know, a lot of partnerships have trouble getting information, you know, basically in, in time to do an estimate of the partner's income for their extensions in April. So it's like, it's not, there's a very good chance that that data is simply not going to have been assembled up for a lot of partnerships when we look at the date there on January 31st. And it may also be significant if the partnership itself, you know, owns interest in other partnerships, things get messy quickly as to how it goes. So the IRS has granted relief, but the key issue to remember about this relief is it only applies to 2023 returns. That's important because this problem's not going away. I don't see how, it's not one of those things where it's, you know, which we see sometimes and it seems pretty obvious, just a whole bunch of people ignored the problem and didn't get ready to do anything about it. And now the year is supposed to happen. They, they whine, they can't get it done in time. And so you get a one-year deferral. So people actually this time 
you know, get ready to do the reporting that they were ignoring. That's not what's happening here. This is a more fundamental problem of trying to get this data by January 31st. But this particular rule only applies for the 23 returns we'll have to watch later in this year, in 24, to see if the IRS makes revisions to the regulations or gives us some other form of relief here. I wouldn't be surprised to see new proposed regs come out, potentially divorcing this information would not necessarily be on, if I was going to do it, it wouldn't necessarily be on the 8308, but rather it would just come out with the K-1s to each of the two partners that are involved. I think that would be the simplest way to do it and would be in line mechanically with what's going to happen this year. But at this point, the relief is the partnership must provide all the information in parts one, two, and three, the standard information, other than the 751A gain information, must be provided by the later of January 31st or 30 days from the date when the partnership is notified of the sale. Because that's also one of the real problems with A308 reporting as well, is that a lot of times the partnership might not be informed of the sale until late, shall we say, somewhat very late after the end of the year. They're suddenly notified, oh, no, no, I, I sold my interest to you know whoever this year. You know, so yeah, we're, we're going to have that particular issue. And then the part four information is on the second page, A308. That still needs to be provided. They didn't say you don't need to provide it, but it can be provided by the later of the due date of the form 1065, including extensions, or 30 days from the date when notified of the sale. Same sort of secondary rule. So bottom line, in most cases, by the end of this month, you'll get most of the information out, what's on the front page A308, but then you'll turn around and get the rest of the information together by the end of, you know, by the time you file the partnership's tax return. That, that's the practical way it will happen. Again, doesn't really change anything in terms of, you know, what's being reported this year. And obviously, the IRS is not saying they're going to do it this way next year. My guess is they're going to probably need to separate the part four information, get it off the 8308 and put it on the K-1. That's just my speculation. I've got, I have no direct influence on what the IRS does. Believe it or not, they don't call me up and ask questions. So we'll see what they end up doing. Finally, the IRS in notice 2024-18 issued on January 12th, updated guidance related to certain entities of getting obtaining exemptions from having to file their information and income tax returns electronically with the IRS. In the 2019 Taxpayer First Act, Congress basically told the IRS to develop new guidelines and essentially reduce dramatically the number of total information income tax returns that a taxpayer needs to file before being mandated to file their income tax return and all information returns electronically. If you're not aware this year, it is down to if you have a 10, if you're filing 10 such returns, you know, so you have 10 information returns, 10 W-2s. And by the way, for it's everything. So you, you, could, you could basically trip this by filing nine W-2s and two 1099 uh, NECs that would be 11, and that would mandate electronic filing for the 1099s, right? You know, the basically the W-2s, the 1099s, and for the income tax return for the entity. 
right? It, now, we, this still doesn't apply to individuals because Congress specifically has told the IRS they can't mandate individuals to file electronically, although they can mandate the paid preparer to file electronically absent the taxpayer asking for it to be filed on paper, which of course has already happened there. If you file more than 10 returns, you are required to file electronically as we know. But Congress did include certain exemptions are still possible. The IRS took the Congress up, did that guidance. As I already said, we reduced down now to a 10 return threshold. You know, 10 returns filed during the year will force you to file every information return and every and your income tax return electronically. So basically at 10, it means that, yeah, only very small businesses will be able to escape and do things only with a paper filing at this point on their W-2s or 1099s and their tax returns. So very small S-Corps, very small partnerships, et cetera, could still escape it, but a lot of anything with any reasonable sized operations will almost certainly have to file everything electronically for 2023 filings, the ones that are due by the end of this month. Notice 2024-18, the one we're talking about here, it adds to the guidance found in notice 2023-60. That was issued last year when the regs came out, uh, telling everybody, that, yeah, you know, the times they are changing, to quote Bob Dylan. Uh, and, you know, you're going to have to get ready to file electronically a lot more things right now. And hopefully that's not, hopefully this is not news to you at this point that, you know, entities must file things electronically, probably I suspect that many in public accounting, if anybody wants you to file something, probably now for sure, if you haven't already been doing it, it's been, well, if we're going to file it for you, it's going to be electronic. But that also means that now a lot of controllers in smaller companies are finding that, yeah, your 1099s have to go electronically this year. You cannot file them on paper, regardless of the fact you've always done it that way in the past. And this notice serves to add to that guidance from 2023-60. And it goes ahead, and I find this funny, it obsoletes uh, notice 2010-13, which was the pre-taxpayer first act guidance, but notice 2023-60 told us that it obsoleted it. So apparently it's double obsoleted at this point in time, that old guidance. Now, what the IRS provides is some guidance in certain areas. Number one, there is the religious exemption. If the technology required to file electronically conflicts with the taxpayer's religious beliefs, then they are entitled to an exemption. Now, for information returns, they, they said, look, you should notify us ahead of time, we're running out of time for ahead of time right now, by filing form 8508, application for a waiver from electronic filing information returns. For income tax returns for these entities, uh, which, which by the way, are the 1120s, 1120Ss, 1120Fs, as well as the uh, 1065s, uh, you would print in bold religious exemption at the top of page one of the return that you plan to file in paper form. They also suggest you pay attention to IRS instructions, publications, and things on their website related to this as well, talking about how to handle those returns that are subject to the exemption. Uh, 
there is a hardship rule as well. They mentioned that. That one, the IRS now is saying, we're not going to give you guidance directly in here. Rather, you're going to find guidance in revenue procedures the IRS may issue, publications, forms, instructions, or other guidance, including postings to the IRS website. Now, hardship would be a case where a taxpayer, let's say, for whatever reason, does not have, does not have access to and can obtain access to uh, let's say computer equipment necessary for the electronic filing. Uh, you know, they may not have the phone lines, various other reasons that you can read in those instructions about what you should do in that case to attempt to get a hardship waiver. The law also allows the IRS, in addition to the hardship waiver and the religious uh, waiver, to have other administrative exemptions where the IRS deems it helpful for tax administration. Uh, if the IRS provides these, and so far I don't believe I've any they provided, then a submission claiming the this, these exemptions must be made in accordance with the Apple IRS revenue procedures, publications, forms, instructions, or other guidance, including postings on the IRS's website. Now, the IRS reminds everybody that under the Taxpayer First Act, under their revisions to Section 30, 6033, Forms 990 and 990PF must now always be filed electronically. So there's, there's no equivalent exemptions carry, being carried over from Notice 2010-13. That's gone now. You're in those categories. You must file electronically. That's not an option. For a case where you attempt to file electronically, but you cannot get a return accepted, and that's for any of, any of the categories, for any of the entities, in either case, they, they point you toward a couple of publications uh, to tell you how to deal with this. If you've had rejects, you can't get them accepted. Publication 4164, Modernized E-File Guide for Software Developers and Transmitters. And Publication 5717, Information Returns Intake System, IRIS, Taxpayer Portal User Guide, has information on how you should handle it, how you're going to send things forward, what's going to happen if you've had a series of rejects and you can't get things processed through. So just be aware of that. We're kind of looking at that and seeing what else is happening. Uh, other thing I'll mention, do not have a slide for it this week, but I will mention it because we talked about this quite a bit recently. But there were on Friday, uh, January the 12th, the IRS, or I should say FinCEN, did add a whole new series of information Q&As so there's some more updates to Q and A's on the FinCEN or on the FinCEN, let's say FinCEN web, the FinCEN FAQ for the beneficial ownership information reports. That data went up, and this particular set of data, like I said, we have a lot of things that went into that category where we were allowed to start adding uh, these particular issues. You may want to take a look at that. As I've said before, you really should be looking there in any event just so that you know when things go up and are working, you know, when things go up there, because they keep adding to it, and they've done quite a bit for. Uh, it does have some interesting special cases, like what do you do if right now there's a fight? We don't, you know, there are different people fighting, claiming they each really own the shares or the interest in the partnership. How do you report that? You know, they, they tell you how to handle that particular situation, which I, I admit seems like one that could come up and then could be a problem. Uh, they talk about a number of other issues. They clarify, which I thought was fun. If a third-party courier delivery service delivers, like when you apply to be your uh, escort, let's say you apply to set up your LLC, 
and you know the the paperwork they don't take electronically so you have to deliver the paperwork to let's say the state capitol to the secretary of state's office they do clarify that the ups guy that walks in there is not a company applicant i thought that was nice of them uh under that that particular issues um also talking about when you use automated incorporation service like you know you go online and you get one of those services that will you know, incorporate you or get the corporation going in a state, get an LLC running. Nah, those, you're, the person actually just asked the automated system to put the things together is going to be the company applicant, not that online company. Uh, some other weird cases like what, 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 what if the beneficial owner due to religious objections, uh, his identifying documents do not include a photograph can we still use that? Yes, you can upload that in those sorts of things. Um, they also talk about the case where if somebody claims they don't have a permanent residence, uh, they say, well, report where they are right now and update in 30 days every time. Just, just keep, you know, I don't care if they don't have permanent residence, report where they're at right when you file it. And then if they move, if they, you know, they, they go somewhere else and every time they do it, apparently you need to update the report. So that, that, that'll be one of those issues. Um, all of those things. And there was a slide update to the answer to the question of how can you use a fence and identifier. So as I noted, just keep your eyes on the FAQ on the FinCEN website. That is at FinCEN.gov BOI. One of the options there will be their frequently asked questions. I do suggest you check in there every so often. You scan, you look for an updated date. Uh, you know, that, that, that's how I discovered this on Friday. I go in there. Now, I think what I look for is when I get on the screen, I look for ED space J-A-N. And the reason I'm doing that is for basically so I can find the end, which I forget. It's not updated, but anyway, uh, published or whatever on, you know, and then month, date, year. Uh, you can't just search for January because a lot of things will get you the January 1st of 2014 or 15 dates. But I found the ED space JAN was good to find. And then you want to go check it. And if nothing's been updated now and you follow through, nothing's been updated, just remember how many, how many hits you got. That'll tell you instantly if you go back in there the next week, whether or not anything has popped up. And obviously, once we get to February, then you just start searching for February. And if you get no, and you'll get no hits initially. And then if anything shows up, you'll know about it. So it's good to check in there. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of January the 16th, 2024. Uh, Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. As I told you before, I do try to answer emails at my address, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. Uh, we are a bit busy now, this time of year, developing courses and doing courses and closing up updates. And then I've got tax season. So things get a little messy right now. So I can't promise I can be able to respond to everything, but I will try to take a look. I also do monitor the Connect sites for the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society, Illinois Society, uh, Minnesota Society, and Washington Society of CPAs, as well as the discussion board for the Idaho Societies. So if you want to post anything on those sites, you're a member of those societies, be sure and post there. Otherwise, we will see you back here next week, hopefully. See what the IRS is up to in this week as we are still getting ready to head to the, uh, you know, our new first filing season. And we're hoping we don't have a government shutdown since 
I think the commissioner kind of said a shutdown in the middle of filing season might be a real problem. I would think that'd probably be true. So hopefully we don't have that coming in. Or if we have one, it's relatively short. But we'll keep our eyes on that stuff as well now. But otherwise, I will see you back here next week for more current federal tax developments.